welcome to the Fromer Travel Show. I'm your host, Pauline Fromer. As always, it's a delight to be talking about something fun like travel. And today we're going to be talking about meaningful travel. Meaningful travel first, and then safe travel. And we'll explain that in a moment. But my first guest is Kate Silver. She is an amazing travel writer. She is, I'm very proud to say, the author of Fromer's Easy Guide to Chicago. But she also writes a hell of a lot for the Washington Post. And she has a wonderful uh, article up right now. It's called A Guide to Volunteering in the Outdoors. Hey, Kate, welcome to the Frommer Travel Show. Hello. Thank you so much. Thank you for Hello. that lovely introduction. So I, I thought, because I am a braggart, I thought I knew everything that was to know about volunteer vacations. But in this r- recent article, you showed me that you don't have to go to volunteer organizations. There are organizations that we know about for other matters that are taking volunteers. Uh, it's a f- How did you discover this? So I, it's actually a really interesting origin story. Thank you for asking that. Um, I was actually in Florida working on a different travel article about manatees. And I was um, I was at two different a state park and a national wildlife refuge who seemed countered a couple of yeah. different people who seemed to be in some expert capacity. And I asked them at two separate locations, what who what is your title? And they told me that they were volunteers through the Fish Nat- National Fish and Wildlife Service and that they were actually living in an RV park nearby in exchange for, um, I think it was 32 hours of volunteering per week, they got to park their mm-hmm. RV for free and get all the hookups and just kind of walk around and talk to visitors about manatees and learn all about manatees. And so that that prompted me to look into where else can you do these things where you get to live in this place for, for no charge and like become an expert? And it turns out, So many places, a lot of the uh, federal agencies, the National Park Service, U.S. Fish and Wildlife, U.S. Army Corps of Engineers, they all have different programs where you can either camp or or live in an RV and volunteer um, a a minimum number of hours per week. Um, And then just kind of enjoy from what I heard from all of the volunteers that they just they got to meet so many cool people and learn and get this sense of community and purpose that really just kind of changed the uh, the idea of travel for them. Wow. Well, let's go back to the National Fish and Wildlife Service. How did these people know enough about manatees to talk to you about them? Do they have to go through training? I mean, how does that work? They were so what they were um, was it was uh, interpretive hosts and I'm not sure what the training involves but they definitely were knowledgeable about it so they weren't like I wouldn't say marine biologist level but certainly talking about the basics of manatees so saying that you know their closest relative is the elephant and uh, hmm. manatee moms nurse uh, their nipple is right under their little flipper and so it was kind of like they they were I would say Wikipedia type knowledge on uh, on manatees, which is really what visitors want. Sure, sure. And how had they discovered that this volunteer opportunity? And, and were they, I hate to say this, but a volunteering age? I mean, often, if you're going to be doing this for a long period of time, you have to be retired. 
Yeah, these definitely were. Uh, and one of them, uh, she was living in her sister's RV with her sister who did this every year. The other couple, they were retired and they were just doing a cross country um, adventure volunteering. Their next stop was Alaska. Um, so that mix definitely was. So when I started looking into the story, I was, um, ex- I pitched it to the Washington Post and wanted to find other you kind of volunteer, surprising volunteer opportunities and was pleasantly surprised to find a couple, um, that was volunteering in Clinton Lake in, uh, in Kansas that they go and they park their camper for six months of the year in this wow. campground. And they are both still gainfully employed. Uh, oh. And each of them actually live in separate households. They haven't co- cohabitated or gotten married yet. Uh, and so their weekends are just spent in the camper acting as camp hosts and working in the visitor center and doing a little bit of maintenance around and meeting people and using the lake and just kind of having this uh, vacation 30 minutes from their homes. Wow. And uh, you, you profiled another couple who uh, love the work that they're doing when they're volunteering, that even though they're supposed to stop after a couple of hours, they kept going because they so oh my gosh. enjoyed. And I heard that. Yeah, I heard that time and again, because to me, it's like 32 hours of volunteering a week. Like, that's a lot. But these, yeah. everyone that I talk to, they love it so much. And the yeah, the couple that you're talking about, um, they had actually retired in 2005. And sold their house, planned on getting, hopping in the RV and, you know, just traveling around, but knew that they wanted something, something grounding. And so they looked at volunteer.gov, which is where all of these and more opportunities are, and um, found that they could be camp hosts. And they have, so they do that once a year, every year. And the guy was saying how everything kind of starts to blend together, but we love this so much because it adds something different. We meet wonderful people. We, they basically are given these binoculars and they stand by like a tidal pool in Oregon and point out, you know, different, uh, different flora and fauna and tell stories about um, like octopuses and different, uh, different animals to the kids that come by. Now, what does the National Park and the Wildlife Service and the other organizations do say about how do they screen volunteers? Because I would think, you know, sometimes you're going to be around around children, around families. Is there a process that people have to go through? I imagine knowing that these are governmental agencies, that it's a very lengthy process, but that wasn't something that I got into. I see. Okay. And what is the, you know, I I don't want to put a monetary value on this because it sounds like these people are doing it for the love of it, but they are getting something free in return, which is actually very different than many volunteer vacations. If you go through a company like Global Volunteers or Earthwatch, you actually pay a hell of a lot of money to go somewhere and volunteer because what you pay kind of underwrites that volunteer program. Uh, but here, that's not the case, right? Right. Yeah. I mean, everyone pays to get themselves there. So there's not like any kind of, you know, organization of that. But once they're there, they do get the, that free hookup. And these agencies really completely rely on volunteers. It was um, the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers told me that last year they had more than 18,000 volunteers serving 1.56 million hours, which equates to 750 full-time employees. Um, The National Park Service had said, I think they have more than 300,000 volunteers a year. I mean, it's, it's astounding. And the volunteers are able to do some of like the more general work so that 
the um, the employees can do more kind of wildlife management and the more kind of expert trained focused work that are that's expected from their agencies. So let's talk about some of the jobs that these volunteers do. We've heard about people who stand beside tide pools and <laughs> explain the critters, which I love. I, I actually think I could be very happy doing that for several months. What, what are some of the other jobs? Are they all that fun? I mean, the ones that I asked about were, there's definitely ones where you can clear invasive species off a trail. You can help build a trail. You know, you can do that kind of stuff. But the ones, the ones that stood out to me, um, I spoke to a woman who is, she volunteers as a lighthouse keeper at Cape Lookout National Seashore in North Carolina. And so she lives in this historic keeper's quarter for two to three weeks a year. This is, I think this is her third year doing it. And by day, she, uh, her concern when she applied for this um, was she has limited mobility. So she wanted to make sure that it wasn't something where she had to do a lot of walking. She didn't have to climb a lot of stairs. And so they basically set her up with a rocker on the porch of the lighthouse keeper's quarter. And she sits in her rocker and people come to her and she talks about the history of the lighthouse and the history of lighthouse keepers. And everyone is basically brought in by, by ferry and private boat by day. And then the last ferry near there leaves at like six o'clock that night and she has the whole lighthouse keeper's quarters to herself and like this you know water view and this amazing just setting wow yeah she when you talked to her she said that it was kind of an ideal life that she could be very very social during the day and talk to people who were so thrilled to talk to her because they were all on vacation they were having a good time and then at night she was in one of the most beautiful places on earth with the quiet, uh, which she yeah. wanted, she really wanted that serenity at night. Yeah, she said one of the most. Cha- I did this didn't go in the story, but she said one of the most challenging parts was um, she has to court, cart all of her own stuff and buy the ferry, so no car, nothing else. And so, like, they don't leave behind any kind of olive. It's like going to an Airbnb that is completely stripped, right? So there's mm-hmm. no olive oil, there's no ketchup, there's no salt. So groceries, all the condiments she's going to want for three weeks, all of her linens to put on the bed. She's like that trip is really rough. After that, I just you know ride the ferry over to the mainland and go to the grocery once a week. But that first trip is really challenging. Wow. Interesting. Was there any one of these volunteer vacations that you thought you, oh, I could do that? I mean, I want to retire early and get an RV. Absolutely. Do all of these. <laughs> um, the, you know, the woofing has appealed to me. Um, the, uh, that is, uh, it's an international organization. Willing that, workers on organic farms, right? Thank you. Yes. Yeah. Um, where people who have there, you're not expected to have any experience in farming or even gardening. And you, um, you can search kind of like Airbnb, this site, you can search types of accommodation, types of farm and spend, you know, from one day to multiple months helping out um, urban farmers, vineyard owners, farmers, a little bit of everything. And you're expected to work five days, a half day a week, a half day for five days a week. And they put you up for, you know, the whole time and serve you three meals a day. And your free time is your free time. And they said that, you know, there's everything from like, cool yurts and tree houses to live in to just much more just kind of modest, uh, modest setups than a farmer's home. Wow. You know, I have a a friend from high school, actually, who's a college professor now, uh, as is her husband. So they don't have a huge amount of money, but they do get the whole summer off. 
And she had been taking her very urban kids woofing every summer. They would do it in a different country. And she felt it was important for them to really understand what went into creating our food. Uh, And they had these incredible adventures. And it made their whole vacation so much more affordable because along with getting room, they also got bored. So they had very few expenses. Yeah, and the fact that it is international, the um, the PR manager there that I spoke with, who um, works with the program directly, she's done it internationally. And I think she, she was talking about a stint that she did solo in Iceland. And so it's also kind of this like, it feels like a protected version of of travel and living living as locally as you can. Right, right. And you get some time off so you can do local sightseeing, and you do sightseeing before and after you get to your woof. Uh, but um, yeah, it's a, it's an amazing uh, panoply of great ideas that you give to us in this in this article, Kate. Is there anything we haven't talked about that you think our listeners would want to know about this volunteering type of vacation? Uh, that it well, the the opportunities go fast. So the one that I opened the story with was. Um, about uh, national uh, looking for a camp host at Heart Mountain National Antelope Refuge, which is in South Central Oregon, super remote. The closest Walmart is 160 miles away. I picked that specifically because they had positions open at the time that I did the interview from May through October. And three weeks after I did the interview, right when the story was running and fact-checking, all of those positions had filled. So I would do research, find something you want, and apply quick because you never know how long it'll last. Wow. Wow. Well, good to know. Uh, And as I said at the start, this is an article. You can get all the details. It's in the Washington Post. It's called A Guide to Volunteering in the Outdoors. Thank you so much, Kate. It's always a delight to speak with you. Thank you, Pauline. Lovely to talk to you, too. Take care. And uh, our next guest is Sarah O'Brien. She is a an addiction specialist uh, with ARC Behavioral Health. And uh, Sarah, thank you so much for appearing on the Firmer Travel Show. Thank you for having me, Pauline. So we're going to talk not about addiction, but about sober vacations, um, it's an interesting topic and one I hadn't realized uh, that, that people who have problems with addictions would have to deal with, that you have to plan your, your vacation in a specific way so that you're not dealing, I guess, with temptation all the time. Is, is that it in a nutshell? Certainly. And I think, you know, the most important thing is to be able to experience, you know, all these really great things that life has to offer and not, you know, have to worry about um, picking up a drink or being tempted, um, you know, to do things that maybe prior to had brought up on so many problems. And, you know, really having a plan, you know, and following through with the plan, you know, can be extremely beneficial for individuals in recovery, newly sober or, you know, have been sober for quite some time. So you say it's all about the plan. How do how do you create a vacation plan for sobriety? Certainly, and I think you know really determining where you're going to go. Um, sure. I think anywhere is possible um, to remain sober at. You know, and just really seeing you know what these places have to offer. You know, you think about 
places such as Cancun or the Bahamas, um, partying and bars, nightclubs, um, cruises, you know, tropical drinks on the beach and all these things. And really, you know, kind of thinking outside the box. You know, if you're interested in going to one of these places, you know, finding, you know, different things that you can do, finding sober activities that you can do at, at these, you know, different islands or places that you're visiting, you know, doesn't necessarily need to be that you're visiting, you know, the greatest bars or, um, you know, you're sitting on the beach at the bar, but maybe you're taking hikes, you're visiting mm. museums, you're going on tours, um, you know, and you're planning out activities to keep, you know, your schedule filled, you know, to, to do things that are really fun and experience what these places have to offer without right. the temptation that could be involved. So I guess what's really important is you do your advanced research before you go somewhere. You don't just leave it up to chance and you, you look at where are the great hikes, what is this place famous for in terms of its attractions? What will be the activities that, that I could do? Uh, and then you, you schedule yourself uh, so that, that – is it that you schedule yourself so you don't have too much free time? Or am I uh, pushing it one step further than we yeah, need Yeah, I to? think, you know, having – too much free time or, you know, feeling like you're missing out, Um, you know, doing really fun activities. And, you know, sometimes you go to these places and, um, you know, that's really what's, um, you know, those are the things that are broadcasted. Those are the the activities that are broadcasted, you know, drinking Mai Tais Mm, or going to the beach and doing these things and, you know, just being educated on what else there is to do, you know, and I think that's just a small part of it. You know, I think it really comes from within prior to leaving, you know, it's knowing the things that may, you know, trigger you, you know, Mm. what brings about anxiety or what brings about um, some sort of, you know, uncomfortability. You know, I can say for myself, personally speaking, I went to Nashville for a bachelorette party um, and Nashville, tens of thousands of people lined the streets, um, shoulder to shoulder in the bars, you know, and, and it got, and it was extremely, you know, it was, it was, a little, it became a little bit uncomfortable at, at multiple, multiple years of sobriety because hmm. that was really the atmosphere. Yeah. However, you know, throughout the days when we went on the um, pontoon boats and we went to beautiful brunches and we explored the city, you know, it was really great. But I knew at that moment, you know, at nighttime when everyone around me was drinking and, and having a great time that, you know, maybe just maybe this really wasn't for me. You know, this really wasn't a place that, you know, it was great to be at and it was great to experience, but it was just not something that, you know, I, you know, thoroughly enjoyed. So is part of this then that somebody gives their themselves permission to go out of the public setting where everybody is imbibing and just having some quiet time in your room with a good book instead? Definitely. You know, just booking a massage or, you know, taking care of yourself is one of the most important things when you're going on a trip. You know, you think of self-care. You're going on a trip to get away, you know, to um, refresh, to restart, to rest, you know, and, and planning things that make you feel good. Maybe you visit a local nail salon. Maybe, you know, you have different activities. Like you said, you enjoy going to a museum or you enjoy seeing, you know, historical um, places in the area that you're in, you know, right. and, and venturing off on your own and doing these fun things. You know, I, I tend to see that since, you know, I've gotten sober that the places I visited, Iceland and Aruba, you know, Ireland, all these places, you know, I, I, I started to do more things hmm. um, sober than I actually did when I wow. wasn't. Now, 
does it matter who you travel with? Do you recommend that people who are trying to keep their sobriety travel with other people who have that same challenge so that they can back each other up? Is that part of this? I think that's a wonderful plan, you know, and not does that always come into fruition? No. Family members travel together and, you know, they don't necessarily have other individuals in their family that are sober or, you know, are in recovery. Um, But I think it's just being open with the people that you're traveling with. You know, if you're going on a trip with someone, if you're going on someplace that's beautiful, you know, it's, it's most likely someone that you understand that understands you, someone that you're close with, you know, you're not going to be traveling, you know, to a foreign Island with an individual that may not know your struggles. I think just, you know, letting them know, um, you know, how you're feeling, being expressive of if you're uncomfortable, um, seeking out different sort of recovery based meetings that are all over the country, all over Mm. the world, you know, can be extremely important. Um, those things I think can be very helpful. Having your phone handy, you know, maybe opening up an international line so that you can call back home. You can call people that are supportive if you're feeling a little bit uncomfortable. You know, just having all lines of communication open with the people you're with and the people that you have back right. home. Well, and it's interesting that you bring up meetings. I would think that's a wonderful play, way to meet locals. I've been on at big events, uh, like I, I went to a music festival. And at that festival, there was a meeting, and I didn't understand what the name went meant. Um, it was, I guess, a code to people who wanted, who are in 12-step programs, that this is where they could meet, and they didn't want the rest of the festival to know that's why they were meeting. What, what is the name of those meetings, usually? <laughs> You know? So this, you know, the twelve step based recovery meetings is this. It varies. Um, they have different types of groups. They have you know women's meetings. They have men's meetings. They have individuals that you know may relate to you know may um, identify as alcoholics. They have individuals that may identify as drug addicts, um, and they have these meetings all across the country and all across the world. And I've been to different you know recovery based meetings in different states, in different countries. And like you said, it's a really a great place to start because you see that no matter where you go, you know, recovery is possible anywhere. Um, You meet people and and you form connections and you hear their stories and they may speak different languages. They may live halfway across the world, you know, but at the end of the day, you know, you're sitting next to them and, you know, you're getting, um, you know, that support from someone who you just met. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Are certain types of vacations though, harder than others in terms of sobriety. I would think something like an all-inclusive resort where all the alcohol is free and there's a lot of uh, emphasis on drinking, at least at the all-inclusive resorts that I've been to. And it's kind of a closed environment where there isn't going to be a museum and people, yeah, they might go and play volleyball. Um, Am I overemphasizing that? Or or do you think that there are certain types of vacations that are are better for maybe people who have just recently gotten sober? Definitely. I do think that those, you know, all-inclusive vacations, it can be extremely tempting, um, especially if you're with individuals that aren't sober um, and they spend a majority of their day and night um, drinking or, you know, at the bar, you know, and I think speaking 
from my own personal experience, you know, it really comes down to the individual. You know, being newly sober can be extremely stressful. Um, it can be very uncomfortable kind of finding your way without alcohol, that putting yourself in that position um, may not be beneficial to the individual. Right. I do think that the further along you go, um, the more support that you gain, um, the more confidence and the recovery program that you have kind of brought into your life allows people to take these trips and do these things, you know, later on, um, sure. they, it allows them to, to go to these places and not feel tempted and not feel as though that they need to drink to have a good time. But right. from the individual perspective, I think it's really, you know, depending upon where they're at in their sobriety, newly yeah. sober, I would say, you know, absolutely not. If, it, if a woman came to me and said, I'm going to an all-inclusive uh, resort in Jamaica with, you know, three of my girlfriends who drink, you know, I would really sit down and try to discuss with her, give her some suggestions on, you know, the, the dangers, you know, the yeah. consequences of these. Of these. Um, yeah, absolutely. But yeah, certainly. Well, thank you so much, Sarah. I really appreciate you taking the time to speak with us. Once again, we've been speaking with Sarah O'Brien. She's an addiction specialist with ARC Behavioral Health. And before we go, I I wanted to talk about some of the travel news that we're seeing this week uh, because it's been a big, big week in travel. First of all, the European Union decided to lift its mask mandate that means if you're flying from an EU country starting, well, starting this Monday, uh, you will no longer have to wear a mask unless you want to wear them. There may be some airlines uh, that keep those rules in place, but for right now, um, it's going to be interesting. I don't know if this is going to be something that draws travelers or turns them off, uh, but it's, uh, it's something that it's good to know as well. If you look at European currency, it has dropped now to its lowest level in years. Right now, the euro is trading at about a dollar five, uh, which is remarkable. It makes Europe far more affordable than it has been in some time. And that's important right now because, A, airfares are much less affordable. So you're going to have to make up uh, the, the shortfalls in your budget somewhere. If you go to Europe, your dollar is going to go further, probably than it will here in the U.S. So if you're looking at a really, really long vacation, this may be the year to do it. You may be able to amortize uh, the cost of the airfare with the savings you will get on the ground in Europe. Uh, Some of the other big news is Airbnb has totally revamped its search capabilities. Um, That that sounds kind of dry, but it's, it's a very interesting move on their part and will probably influence other uh, lodging organizations. What they've done is, in the past, when you went to Airbnb, you got one big box, and the box said, where are you going to go? Now, you get a choice. You get either that big box, if you know, I'm going to Paris, I only want to go to Paris, you just put in Paris and you see what the options are. If you're not sure where you want to go, They're going to allow you to search by types of housing. And sometimes the types of housing have something to do with the activity uh, that you'd be doing there. So say you're a surfer. You could put in surfing houses. 
and it would take you to Costa Rica. It would take you to France, believe it or not. They have houses that are near good surf breaks in France. It would take you to Guatemala. It would take you all to all kinds of different places all over the world because you have an interest in surfing, and you might be able to find an affordable one that way. Um, mostly what the new uh, categories are are things that are meant to tempt you. So it's it's kind of fun to hop around the site and see the caves and the castles and the homes that are on in wineries or in former shipping containers uh, or on ranches or on farms. I mean, there's just such a variety of options. They are doing something which worries me, though. For anybody who is looking for a stay of a week or longer, they are going to automatically, you don't get to ask for this, they're going to automatically suggest that you break up the week between two different places. They're saying, oh, it's going to be great. It's going to be such variety. Why stay in one place for one full week? Why not break it up? Sounds good. But the problem is, if you do that, you probably double the cost of your vacation because those two parts of the trip are considered two different bookings. And in many places around the world, Airbnb's fees, by which I mean the fees that the company charges, as well as the fees that hosts charge, say cleaning fees, you would have to pay two of those in the course of a vacation rather than just one. So there, it's, it seemed a little invidious to me, I got to say, that they're really, really pushing people to book two different places. They're, they're making the claim that in doing so, this will give the public more options in terms of where they're going to stay. Uh, because sometimes a place might be available for four days rather than 10. And that way you get to try that place that, that wouldn't even have come up in your search originally because it wasn't available for your full 10 days. But to me, this feels kind of like Airbnb double dipping, that they're they're just trying to get people to pay them twice for one vacation anyway. The other thing they're doing, though, I think is a total win for travelers they are inputting a new system of included insurance, which actually sounds pretty darn good. Uh, they are saying that, say you show up to a place and you thought you were getting a place with three bedrooms and there's only two. They have now, they're now going to have trained staff members available 24-7 to help book you into an equivalent property. So you won't have to do all the searching on your own. They have folks who you call them up and you say, hey, I've got six people with me. We can't accept a place with just two bedrooms. And that's what we got. We were told a lie on your site. They are going to help you, which I think is terrific. And they're going to do it. Uh, if they can't do it, they'll give you a refund. They'll also do this if your host cancels within a month of your visit or if you can't get into the place. And that happened to me once. I I uh, showed up at a 10 at night and it was very strange. I couldn't get in and I couldn't get through to anybody at Airbnb. They say now they will have a 24-7 capability to talk to people, to fix their problems, to help them. They're also going to have a 24-7 safety line 
which also is really, really good uh, because we've all heard those stories of Airbnb stays that have gone wrong. Um, so some good things in there, some bad things. It's going to be very interesting to see where this all, uh, you know, shakes out in the future. Uh, but, um, yeah, if you're a big Airbnb fan, and I used to be, um, but now, to be honest, uh, the prices have gotten so high on Airbnb, I find that I often get better rates at hotels, and actually studies will back me up on that, uh, with the exception of two states, I think it's Nevada and Louisiana, hotels, on average, are less expensive uh, than Airbnbs. Uh, partially has to do with the fact that at the height of the pandemic, everybody was nervous about staying in an Airbnb uh, or staying in a hotel, I should say, because they didn't want to go into a crowded lobby. They didn't want to be in an elevator with strangers. You wanted to social distance. And the idea of having a house to yourself, therefore, was very appealing. Perhaps most the most interesting thing that Airbnb revealed when they debuted this new look for their site is 50% of the people who use their site are now using it for stays of 30 days or more, which I think shows that the people are using Airbnb to find a place to live, not just vacation. This partially has to do with the fact that we have a lot more digital nomads, people who are working from anywhere. Uh, but it also probably speaks to the housing crisis uh, that, that is so prevalent both here in the U.S. and abroad. So a lot to unpack uh, with Airbnb's uh, new release. Uh, anyway, I will stop gabbing. Uh, but as always, I thank you so much for listening and uh, may I say to anybody who was traveling, I wish you a hearty bon voyage. See you next week. No